Welcome, Out of the Box listeners. Today, we're continuing with our new series, Through the Marxist Lens, featuring acclaimed professor Clyde Barrow. Today, we're going to use the Marxist lens to discuss the relationship between capitalism and democracy. Clyde, let's talk about that. Tell us, what is the relationship between capitalism and democracy? How did Marx see the growth of capitalism and growth of uh, socialism side by side? Yeah, well, uh, certainly Karl Marx, but most major political theorists of the 19th century, such as John Stuart Mill, who started as a liberal and became a socialist, all agreed on one thing about the relationship between capitalism and democracy. They were mutually contradictory and incompatible. And the basic proposition there was that in an industrial society, the working class is the majority. And it was pretty much assumed that if you give them the vote, the first thing they will do is elect and vote for socialists. Uh, they will vote capitalism away. So I think it's telling that, that one of the most important quotes we get from Marx in the Communist Manifesto, he wrote the first step in the revolution by the working class is to win the battle of democracy. He saw democracy as the political shell in which workers could organize themselves. They could pass legislation that would benefit the general public, but that would all come at the gradual erosion of, of capitalist relations, production, and the power of the capitalist class. Now, what actually did he, he mean by that? What would we do with democracy if we actually had it? And I'll try to make this as relevant to a, the contemporary debates that we're right. having in the United States right now. Perfect. Uh, one of the first things that he argued democracy means is universal suffrage, the right of every adult to vote. And of course, we know that as we've seen progressive Democrats start to gain power and make inroads against the capitalist system in recent years, uh, the Republican Party is engaged in a concerted effort to eliminate universal suffrage through voter suppression measures. So one of the things Marx always emphasized throughout his career was don't take democracy for granted. It's something you have to win, and it is something you have to win and reestablish every day. But if you win democracy, what are you going to do with it? Uh, and my students are always surprised by this when we go over the so-called 10-point minimum program that Marx articulates in the Communist Manifesto. That if we have democracy, what are we going to do? Well, the first thing Marx proposes, we're going to implement a heavily graduated or progressive income tax so that we can raise revenue. And he also suggests at various times either abolishing or minimizing the right of inheritance, such as through inheritance taxes and wealth taxes. So what are we going to do with that money? Well, we're going to create free public schools and free public education for everyone. We're going to have a national bank to direct monetary policy and capital investment. We're going to have a system of public transportation, such as railroads and airlines. We're going to have public communication systems, which in the modern day would be right the internet, the telephone, the postal service, which has been under attack, was considered a key socialist policy, believe it or not. And most of all, he talks about public investment that will stimulate the economy and create living wage jobs for everyone. Actually, yes, when I bring that up in my classes, the students are rather shocked to go, that's socialism? <laughs> You'd think Joe Biden is one based on some of his policies recently. It sounds very utopian, but it also is very interesting in that it sounds like Marx thought capitalism would generate the 
productivity and the capital to create all of that wealth. These aren't socialists or communists or workers creating that wealth. It's the, quote, capitalist class that he then wants to tax for the benefit of the, the working class. That sounds a little more interesting than I thought. Well, this is why he called it the, the minimum program. Uh, because at, at that stage, he's talking about a transitional program, uh, which we would today probably refer to as social democracy or as a welfare state. Uh, the idea was to transfer for income through government services to benefit the majority of the people. But at the same time, he does talk about uh, taking uh, public control of capital. And he talks about that in two ways. Uh, one would be the use of a national bank to create various kinds of, of state-owned enterprises. Now, that could include things like railroads, including things like airlines, uh, the Postal Service. And this may all seem quite bizarre to you, but if we go back to Ronald Reagan, uh, and then again under the second George Bush and Obama, the reality is, if you think about it, the U.S. government has already nationalized large swaths of the U.S. economy multiple times as a result of economic crisis since yes. the 1980s. The savings and loans, the banks, the insurance companies, General Motors, Chrysler, Lockheed. I mean, we could go on Amtrak, the passenger yes. railway system. We could go on and on. So there's really nothing utopian about this. No. Quite the contrary, what Marx was arguing is that, that periodic economic crises would actually force the state to do this in order to salvage the economy. And in, what, and in the process, it would effectively be creating a socialized and socialist economy. Right. That is really funny or interesting because... People don't even realize that in New York City and other cities in the United States in like the, the, the 19th century, the fire departments were private and they would watch exactly. buildings burn down rather than put, put out the fire. So we had to have a, quote, socialist response to a simple thing like putting out a fire. And everybody thinks socialism is like some boogaboo, but it really puts out fires in buildings rather than let private enterprise do that. It's really that simple. Uh, and the idea then is that government can run those enterprises as a public service for the benefit of the public. It doesn't necessarily have to turn a higher and higher profit on that on that uh, on that industry each year. It can run it at a break even or a small profit in order to facilitate reinvestment. So what's uh, happening now? Where's the battle? Tell us about the battle that you see contemporarily between you know socialists and 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 through a Marxist lens and capitalism right now. What's working and not working? Where are we evolving to? I think democracy is under serious attack in the United States, but really all over the world at this point. Part of that goes back, uh, you know, a couple of generations back to the '60s, the '70s when actually the working class and ordinary citizens made very significant gains in through institutions such as the New Deal in the United States, but in Western Europe, Australia, there were very significant inroads against capitalism, which saw unions strengthen, wages go up, social welfare benefits go up, spending on public education and higher education opened up opportunities to millions of people who had never had access to higher education previously. Well, that did come at the expense of corporate profits and it did come at the expense of a very heavily graduated income tax of the sort that Marx talked about. Uh, and we reached a point probably somewhere about the mid 1970s where what I would call the ruling class or the capitalist class said, you know, we've had enough of this. <laughs> it's gone too far and we need to roll it back. 
And it started under Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in Great Britain, where they began to roll back a lot of these policies and to privatize various types of state facilities, such as universities being one in this country. But as people fought back against those rollbacks, it eventually, I think, has resulted in an effort to just simply say, we just need to end democracy. We need to take the vote away from these people. And you can't just legislate now that you're going to take away the vote. So you come up with all kinds of voter suppression methods that are just as effective. Because as of right now, 75% of all non-voters in the United States are working class service sector workers, predominantly minority. So if you make it difficult to impossible to vote, you disenfranchise the working class. And when you disenfranchise the working class, you undercut the electoral base for these kinds of progressive socialistic policies. Wow. Are the progressive socialistic policies policies that these people really are aware of that aren't voting? You know, in prior episodes, we talked about the lumpen proletariat. What concerns me is that some of the individuals may not even know what their own interests are or be able to vote their own interests. Yeah, well, there's certainly part of that. Of course, there's a whole media and propaganda machine that that gets rolled out to sort of divert people onto issues that, that are not consistent with their long-term interests. But I think it's important, uh, I'll use an example from 1871 in the Paris Commune, uh, which Marx identified as the first true worker's state, as he called it. And in the context of the Paris Commune, very few of the workers who were promoting uh, the development of a worker state would have called themselves Marxists. Most of them were followers of the anarcho-syndicalist Pierre-Jean Proudhon. Others were followers of Louis Blanc, who was a French revolutionary. And Marx was okay with that because Marx's argument was they don't necessarily have to go out and read the Communist Manifesto or understand my arguments in Das Kapital to build a worker state. In fact, what they are doing is responding to their immediate needs, responding to a crisis, and that will lead them in that direction, whether or not, you know, they use the name Marx or use the word socialism. In fact, they referred to it as a worker state or a social republic is the, the phrase they actually used. But I do want to use that as a segue to introduce one right. thing, as I've talked about, you know, nationalizations and socializations, and that tends to... Uh, get people nervous, right, about the state taking over the economy. The reality is if you talk about all of the industries I've discussed that would be prospects for, for nationalization or socialization, it's probably 20 to 25 percent of the U.S. economy. And in one way or another, government already influences over half the economy through its spending anyway and through various kinds of mandates. But a very important component of what Marx saw as vital to the construction of a worker state was the extension of democracy beyond the political sphere into the economic and social sphere, which is why it's also sometimes called economic or social democracy. What he most admired about the Paris Commune was the fact that workers took direct control of the means of production uh, and took ownership of their factories, took engaged, managed their own factories, uh, promoted the development of small businesses and cooperatives. So there, there was the vision there of a whole sort of third sector of the economy that's neither private nor public 
as we typically understand those words, but is cooperatively or collectively owned directly by workers themselves. Haven't we seen the exact opposite in the United States democracy with the concentration of power in, in the healthcare area into five or six giant corporations right now into Amazon? Aren't we seeing the exact opposite, the concentration of wealth and power? And is that is that you know, a part of the process that he saw? Yeah, absolutely. Marx, uh, Marx actually called it the general law of capitalist accumulation, right? It was accumulate or be accumulated is, is the basic law of the jungle in a capitalist economy. So, so his argument was left unchecked. The natural trajectory of a capitalist economy was for wealth and industry to become increasingly concentrated in the hands right. of a smaller and smaller group of people. You know, the, the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk of the world. And of course, that's exactly what is, has been happening, uh, certainly since the 1980s, when we began this process of deregulation and privatization. That's one of the reasons why Marx thought that you can't just have political or social democracy in the form of a welfare state. His argument was power emanates from wealth. Redistributing income doesn't redistribute wealth. You have to redistribute wealth. That means you either redistribute the ownership of the means of production directly to the working class, or you indirectly do that through various forms of public ownership, where in a political democracy, the public would have input into things like Federal Reserve policy or the management of the banking system or the operation of the local public transit system and things of that character. Uh, it was about control of wealth, not just redistributing income because it's wealth that generates income. Is this where the minimum wage fight comes in? Is this part of that? That would certainly be part of it. But, you know, again, that's the minimum wage is really more about redistributing income. It's setting a basic floor under people in terms of their standard of living, that would be what Marx would call, you know, part of his minimum program. It's part of a transitional plan, but it doesn't take us to the final trajectory that he wants to end up at, which is workers have to be in direct control of the economy or indirectly through the state and through various forms of political democracy. And we could talk about multiple forms of ownership that could exist in a socialist economy or whatever phrase you want to use to describe it. It's about redistributing wealth. And, you know, that could include things like employee stock ownership in private firms. It could include things like co-determination they have in Germany, where union officials sit on the boards of directors and help manage the company. So there are lots of different policies one can envision uh, for redistributing power over the means of production or so-called wealth, that is property, and that's part of been the sort of the vibrancy of the debate on the left, you know, for the last 150 years is, is how do you construct such an economy? What will it look like? And I think everybody agrees, obviously, that, you know, the state socialism of the Soviet Union was an abject failure by any measure that you'd like to put forward. So nobody's talking about something of that nature. Well, there was no democracy in that whatsoever. That was that ended up as being a dictatorship, not even of the proletariat, just a you know brutal dictatorship, that's for sure. Okay, tell us about your perception of where we are in the debate between democracy and socialism and the fight going on right now for, you know, for increased economic participation to cancel student debt, to build Biden's new infrastructure plan. He wants to do all these socialist things to fix the airports, the railroads, the Internet even. 
why are we at this juncture right now? What happened to bring us to this point where almost everybody recognizes that something is, you know, is pretty radically wrong with the way our democratic capitalist society is going? Yeah, I, I think we're definitely at a very significant turning point. Uh, it's a watershed set of events in our history. I think the most critical ones were, of course, we had the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010, where the global financial system utterly collapsed. Uh, millions of people lost their homes, their jobs, their savings. Uh, thinking that was a once in a lifetime event, lo and behold, we get a global pandemic and we're back in an even worse depression literally in a depression, our first since the 1930s, where, again, people, you know, unemployed, losing their jobs, losing their savings. So in a sense, the system itself exposed its own flaws, contradictions and shortcomings <laughs> in such a dramatic way that you can't not see it. And, and I think that has led to a generational transformation in which we see the polls all the time now where people under the age of 30 or 35, a majority of them do not see socialism as a bad thing. Uh, they're not afraid of, of the boogeyman anymore and they're, they're willing to push in that direction. And then at the same time, uh, I certainly don't think Joe Biden in any way considers himself a socialist or even a progressive, but as Mark suggested, it is the pressure and the necessities of the times that force him to do things he might not do under ordinary circumstances. And of course, I think to the surprise of many people on the left, Joe Biden has moved further and faster to the left than anyone anticipated with his policies and certainly not in his rhetoric. You know, we got the $1.9 trillion stimulus relief package for COVID which I think made a huge breakthrough in terms of providing for childcare allowances that may become permanent in his next wave of bills. His new infrastructure bill includes a significant increase in corporate income taxes and an elimination of fossil fuel tax exemptions or, or privileges that they've received. And if you okay. saw it in the New York Times today, the description of it, it's the biggest spending plan yeah. and the most dramatic government intervention in the economy since the New Deal. And that's, that's the first half of the plan. There's as more a, to as come. A, right. As a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist myself, I view this as him trying to literally save capitalism and democracy. I, I view yeah. it that he's literally coming in with, with the, 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 the wagonfuls of money to save the system from destroying itself. And it's the Democrats, as, as FDR did, also in, during the Depression with the New Deal, literally trying to save capitalism you know, so that we can continue to go on because it looked to me like this thing may come to an end with all the contradictions and all the, the economic uh, disasters you know, that, that have befallen us. So that's just how I see it. And, and I'm sure that's how Joe Biden sees it as well, although uh, it wasn't more than a couple of hours before the, the, the chief of the business roundtable, which represents the 100 largest corporations in America, came out opposed to Biden's infrastructure plan because he doesn't want to see an increase in corporate taxes. And, yeah. and this has been always one of the paradoxes of trying to save capitalism from itself, right. is it doesn't want to be saved from itself. <laughs> This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.